So, welcome back and thanks for coming. Um, we're still in Ephesians, so let's pray and then we'll jump into Ephesians 2 again and we'll continue on with what we've been reviewing for the last few weeks. So, Father, thank you for who you are and we thank you for this uh, group of families who comes together to worship you, Lord, to spend time in your word and to draw nearer to you. Uh, we ask that you richly bless them and um, just keep them in your hands, keep them walking with you. And we just thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And we ask that we draw nearer to him through the studying of your word. We ask for all of our blessings in your holy name. Amen. So Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 16 this week. Um, if you'll notice, I don't do many verses at a time. I think it's worthwhile as you study the word of God that it's less commentary. You'll, I mean, and not that that's bad. You'll notice that some people like to study just like big long swaths like ideas or topical messages from the word of God and I'm not saying that's necessarily bad but there's so much to glean out of the word of God about the language and what's happening and what people are saying and and what it really means that I, I think it's worthwhile going verse by verse and just taking everything you possibly can out of it um, remember the translations are good it's not like you're getting a new idea because it's in English and not in Latin or not in Greek or not in Hebrew, but there are some nuances. And if you look into the nuances, you really do learn a lot more about what the writer's trying to say, right? About what God's trying to say through those writers over time. So it's important that we dig in verse by verse, I think. Um, and Paul has just been teaching us recently that we were far off. We kind of went over that last week. So we were once far away, just like the Gentiles were, is I don't think any of you were Jews. I was not. So none of us had the law and we were far off. And he drew us close by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were lawless. We were lost. We were following the ways of the world. And it's through his work and his work alone that we were drawn close to him, saved by his grace. So that being said, this is where we are. We're now in Ephesians 2. We're in verse 14. And today we're going to do 14, 15, and 16 <clears throat> so paul starts out like this in verse 14 it says for he himself is our peace who has made us both one has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility so it starts out here with jesus is our peace and this is really important it's important because sometimes we get this <clears throat> crazy idea of what peace looks like world peace you know i'm at peace like what does it mean to be peaceful uh, and in this case it's not saying that you're going to have peace or you're going to be peaceful it says jesus is going to be your peace. And that's a really important piece of the equation here, right? So this word uh, is arene. This is peace. What does that mean? So Paul was a Jew, right? He's a Jew and a Roman. He really understood Jewish culture, greetings, farewells, stuff like that. And this word arene or peace holds a lot more than the kind of the temporal idea 
of just, you're going to have peace. Um, it's the idea that we would endure trials um, or endure difficult times. It's defined as a sense of welfare or security because we're secure in him. If you think about it, as a Jew, how would Paul have greeted somebody? Shalom. Peace. Peace be with you. And of course, when he left somebody, he would have also said, Shalom, or go in peace. Well, that, that word peace doesn't necessarily mean like, go be a peaceful person. It's this idea of go with endurance, go with the ability to endure, go with some sort of strength of understanding your faith. So there's a lot more to this word of Jesus Christ is our peace than just to be peaceful or be at peace or not have strife or not have worries or whatever that may be. Jesus in John 14, 27 said this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Christ is, is trying to tell us in this that when he leaves, and of course he sends us the Holy Spirit, that he leaves us with a peace that is hope. He leaves us with a, with a peace that is him. He leaves us with a peace of something greater than what is here in the world that we try to strive for because that is not real, nor is it everlasting. As we all know, everybody in this business in the room, when you try to go somewhere and help make it better and more peaceful, people will screw it up. It is a fact. You can try your best to try to get people better, even if it's medically, physically better. Try to calm the storm in some other country and give them ideas on how to make things better. People will screw it up. Things will never be peaceful here. So this idea of being at peace is much less about not having turmoil. It's much less about or much more about <laughs> the hope of Christ to come. In Matthew, in chapter 6, verse 34, after teaching us to give to the needy, Christ is going through this uh, at the time, the Sermon on the Mount here in, in Matthew. In, so chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, verse 34, he had already taught us about giving to the needy. He had taught us how to pray. This is where the Lord's Prayer comes in. So Rowan knows that really well. He knows it by heart. And he taught us how to lay up treasure in heaven. Right, We don't lay up our treasures here. We lay them up in the next. We do good works. We are faithful. We are hopeful because we know that something is coming on the other side and God will reward us. He tells us not to worry about tomorrow. He says this, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. <laughs> like, hey, look. It's like Christ is like, hey, look. Tomorrow's going to suck. Trust me. Like, trust me. It's going to be bad. So don't worry about it. If you worry about it, you're just going to be worried for the rest of the day. So have hope in what is today. Me, your peace. Like, I got this for you. Okay? And he goes on and says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but through a long career and through family and extended family and stuff, I've had plenty of stress and stuff, stuff that's not peaceful. And it is really difficult to not worry about 
how am I going to pay that bill tomorrow? How am I going to get that thing fixed tomorrow? How is my relationship with fill in the blank, my daughter, my wife, my whatever going to be tomorrow? We worry about tomorrow too much. Christ is like, you've got today and enough going on today to keep you busy. So let's get through that. When we have that focus in our lives, we do things right in our worship. We worship and pray and love and expect hope in him right now. Like, hey, God's got me. Tomorrow we could all burn down. Today we're going to enjoy treats and coffee and fellowship. Some of you probably have other stressors going on in your life. Some of them might be monumental. Well, guess what? Tomorrow's not here. Right now, we got coffee and snacks and couches and like things. God's Jesus himself is like, don't worry about that. Right now, you've got enough. John 16, verse 33 says this. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, (coughs) excuse me, tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we have a hard time finding peace with God through Christ when times are hard. I want you to bear with me on this and we'll, we'll talk about it. But I want to go to uh, Mark 4. So if you have your Bible or if you have your Bible on your phone, go to Mark 4. And we're going to go to verse 35. <coughs> Mark 4 and verse 35. This, if you've been in church for more than a day or two, is a famous story, right? It's about Jesus calming the storm. And it's regularly told in a way that is like Jesus is going to calm the storm of your heart. Well, guess what? That is absolutely some of the worst exegesis ever. Because there are going to be storms in your life that are going to ravage it and Jesus may not step in. It may just destroy everything. And we need to be prepared for allowing the storm to just do what storms do. Sometimes we just need to expect that as much as we try to fix the finances, they're not going to work out. As much as we try to fix a relationship with a family member, it's not going to work out. As much as we try to get something to happen with our kids as we're trying to raise them and guide them, they are not going to listen. As much as you know, our wives try to fix us and mold us into the perfect men, even though we're already pretty close, I would say, they're not going to get us to 100%. They're going to have to expect that 99% is good enough. We can't expect things to be perfect by our work. We got to expect that things are not going to be perfect here. The storm isn't always just going to go away. Listen to what Christ says here. Mark records in this story. On that day, when the evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him And with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care? 
that we are all perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Man, these guys missed so much of what was going on at that time. This blew right by them like just unreal how bad they screwed this thing up. These guys are in this boat with God, okay? It's God. He made it all. He controls it all. He can do anything he wants. The storm comes, they've got God in the boat. I don't know about you guys, but if God was sitting in the living room and he was like, hey, my peace is with you, I'm building the place for you in the next, don't worry about what happens, then if a storm comes, you shouldn't have to freak out and be like, dude, what are you going to do about the storm? Like I'm sitting in the room with God. He's probably got it under control. No, they freak out and wake him up. Lack of faith. Things got bad for them. And instead of just being at peace with what he had promised them, they started to worry. They didn't even pray. They woke up God to get him to fix the storm. And he doesn't fix the storm to save their lives. He fixes the storm probably to calm everything so he can look at them and be like, hey, stupid, it's me, God. Why do you not have any faith? I've been walking with you, doing all these miracles, raising people from the dead, fixing all this stuff, doing all this. I am telling you them, God, I'm the fulfillment of scripture. I am the Messiah. And all you can worry about is the wind. Really? And I can't help but think, is this not how we run life? This is why I hate the prosperity church movement. Because the prosperity church movement that'll have you go in and raise your hands, lower the lights, have a rock concert, and then give your money at the end without teaching the gospel is all about how people feel. I feel good. People want to say things like, I'm being filled with the spirit, man. And they have this big goofy feeling while they're in there because it's a rock show and they are being taught how they're going to prosper and they're being taught how things are going to be done right and they're being taught how God owes them something and they're being taught that they're little gods and they're being taught that things are going to be good if they just give of their money or give of their time and everything's going to be good and then you know what happens to somebody in that crowd when they go home and everything sucks they completely lose faith because that's not what it's about God is clear he's clear go to Matthew 24 everything's going to start getting worse He wants us to endure in faith in him. He's our peace. This isn't our peace. This is the world. It's breaking down. We need to expect it. If we don't teach our kids to be resilient, if you guys haven't noticed, things are not getting better in the world. They continue to get worse. By the time our kids are older and they're not resilient, there won't be any faith left. They're not going to have any faith at all. I was listening to this podcast this week. Awesome. If you guys don't listen to it, It's the Just Thinking For Yourself podcast. Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker. Man, these guys, it's pretty amazing the stuff they bring. So they talk a lot about critical race theory and uh, like what's going on in the schools, what's going on in the church, in the world, how things like race is kind of like the next hot point that's 
tearing the church down from the inside because Satan is a liar and he tries to separate us all. And he couldn't separate us all in many other ways. And now the one that's pretty obvious is like, you don't look like you. So we are going to create a division between the two of you. And it's working in the church. Anyway, so I'm listening to this podcast where they're talking about fear. And I want to read you this quote. And it's going to take me a second to get through it. So I hope you'll bear with me. This quote is by a 16th century Puritan preacher. The guy's name was John Flavel. Really good writer. Uh, Probably not a book you would find at the bookstore. But bear with me as I talk to you about this for a second. It says, There is so much diversity in people's inward moods and dispositions as in their outward features. Some are frightened as rabbits and jump at every sound, even a dog's bark. Some are as bold as lions and face danger without trembling. Some fear more than they ought, some before they ought, and others when they ought not at all. The carnal person fears man, not God. The strong Christian fears God, not man. The weak Christian fears man too much and God too little. There is a fear which is the effect of sin. It springs from guilt and hurries the soul into more guilt. There's a fear which is the effect of grace. It springs from our love for God and his interest that drives the soul to him in the way of duty. The fear, the less fear a person has, the more happiness he has. Unless, of course, it is that fear which is the happiness and excellence. It cannot be said of any person as it is said of Leviathan, he is made without fear. That comes from Job 41. The strongest people are not without some fears when the church is in the, check this out, in the storms of persecution and almost covered with the waves her most courageous passengers may suffer as much from this boisterous passion within as from the storm without. This is the result of not thoroughly believing or seasonably remembering that, pay attention, the Lord, admiral of the oceans and commander of the winds, is on board the ship to steer and preserve it from the storm. John Flavel. It directly relates to this, right? It directly relates to this idea of being in the boat and having fear. Jesus is our peace. Storms are going to happen. Stuff in life is going to make it suck so bad that you want to quit, that you want to give up on people, and you want to not worry about your finances, and your kids are driving you nuts, and you're like, why am I doing this all wrong? You're not. You've got to have hope in him. He's got you. Bring your kids up in Christ. Pray with your spouse. Love your spouse. Love your kids. Serve your neighbors. Love God. It's really that. That's what he told us to do. Sometimes it's going to get bad. But we got to have that endurance where we tell ourselves it's not just going to get better because we have silly, crazy light shows and music in a church. Endurance means understanding things are going to get tough. They, they brought up in that podcast this other Puritan preacher. His name's Thomas Boston. He makes the correlation of sinful fear and turning away from God's desire to have mankind focus on him. It's that cause, that causation that caused Adam to sin in the garden. It's when we focus on our own desires that real trouble occurs. 
That's original sin. So think of it this way. Adam and Eve had a healthy fear of God before they took of the fruit they were told not to. The God, like Flavel said, the God fear, not of what was happening. And then Satan comes in and twists it. You don't need to worry about God. You want, to, you want this information for yourself. And they turned away. So us, when we forget that Christ is our peace, we turn away from God and we focus on the things in our life that are bad and we make them our gods. And then we find ways for us to try to fix them. That puts us in charge, but we're not in charge. We can't fix those things. God's going to fix those things. We need to turn back to God and get on our knees and pray. Spend time with our spouse praying, spend time worshiping, spend time reading the Bible and get back to what's more important because he's got it. In the storm, Jesus reminds his disciples that they have no faith. Is it not during the storms of our lives that we need to rely on Christ for our peace, right? As we move on in this set of verses, this passage, Jesus abolished the law, the commandments expressed in the ordinances, right? He tore down this idea that reconciliation only through the Jews and following the law. Another way of saying there's nothing we can do to be saved. We've talked about this. Nothing we can do. There's no need to worry if what we're doing is enough. Because guess what you can't do? Enough. You can't do it. You cannot do enough. That's why he's our peace. You can't do enough, right? He took the two men, the righteous and unrighteous, and through his blood he created one new man, <coughs> the new righteous man. 2 Corinthians 5 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we are a new person when we are in Christ. Ephesians 4, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, verse 24 says, and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so in this, making us new, he's making us peace. If he's our peace and he's making us like him, then we become like his peace. This is what we should exhibit in our lives. We have to keep our eyes on him. It's a sign of maturity as a believer. It's a sign of maturity to understand that peace, where to turn, where to tell your friends and your family when they have tribulations in your life that you understand and this is where you need to go. It's a sign of reliance on Christ for salvation, justification, sanctification, and peace in him. Do not reduce yourself to focus on the storm. Focus on the satisfaction of eternal security that is only found in his promise. So God reconciles us in one body. We've talked about this, like we are the body of Christ. So he's going to reconcile believers as one body, his body. Christ is the head or Christ is the bridegroom. There's a couple different ways that we look at it. He's the head of the church. The church is his body, or he's the bridegroom. We are the bride, but he reconciles us as one body. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the word reconcile like this, to bring back to a former state of harmony, to draw to himself by reconciliation that they may be devoted to himself. So this is what God is doing. He's drawing back believers through Christ's work on the cross, into a state of harmony to draw himself by reconciliation and that he has devoted us to him. So it's going to be perfect. Remember last week we talked about the purpose for which God made Adam and Eve. We went all the way from Ephesians back to Genesis 1 because it's like 
he said we were made for a purpose from the beginning of time. So what does that look like? What were we made for? And we talked about what we're made for, right? God, he was finished with the work. He said, what about it? After he made mankind, that it's good. He made it and it's good. So we have to have that focus in our life. He's reconciling us in one body. He's reconciling us to that, to the goodness, to the perfection. We are reconciled through the cross, which he speaks of here. We have spoken now over the last couple of weeks a couple of times about the very weighty idea of this idea of the cross, right? The importance of understanding just how important that work on the cross is. This is a humongous pet peeve of mine that if you sit with a believer that has a kind of a wishy-washy view of Christ's work on the cross or even Christ as the atonement or Christ as the propitiation, just how weighty the idea of like taking God's wrath. We talked to you about this last week. Taking God's wrath on himself, all of his hate, all of that punishment. He's a perfect judge and it needs to be poured out somewhere. And it's important that we understand that it's, it's not just about wiping away sin or reconciliation, but Jesus bearing the weight of his wrath. So Paul's making that case here. It's when Jesus bore that wrath, that unity was created, not only with us, but with him, and that we have peace with him. We have peace because he did this horrific act for us. So as Paul finishes this passage, it says this, therefore killing hostility. So typically on Sunday, I read out of <coughs> the ESV. Um, and, but I'll compare versions. So I'm comparing last week, one of the other versions I love to study out of, which is the NASB. And in the NASB, instead of the word hostility, it uses the word enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y. Not a word we use in English vernacular very much, but it is a regular English word. So therefore killing, instead of hostility, therefore killing enmity. What does that mean? That through his work, he killed enmity. So this word describes a deep, vile hatred it's not there's not even actually a strong enough word to describe what enmity means it's a deep vile hatred it's hatred that deserves destruction or deserves alienation he poured out his wrath onto his own son and he unifies us and he becomes our peace so this is kind of the practical side of this as we get through this kind of portion is how do we practice this understanding of christ being our peace well, I think there's a few practical things that we all need to do. I need to do it. You need to do it. Sadie needs to do it. We need to read our Bible. This is the word of God. He said it's the word of God. It's the Theonustos from Timothy. The Theonustos. It's the breath of God that pours out over you, that fills you. Read the Bible. Pray. Pray alone. Pray as a family. Pray as a couple. Pray with your friends. Pray. Develop a time for your own devotion. Bible devotion, I usually do Bible devotion in the morning and then I study at night. So I'm studying out of the word of God anyway. But you've probably heard it said before, like you spend 14 hours a day doing other things, but you spend five minutes in like a cookie cutter Bible devotion. And it's like, so I gave God five minutes and then I gave the world, you know, 23 hours and 55 minutes. So... What's that going to look like as I flesh life out through the rest of the day? You know, what you pour yourself into is what, you know, you are what you eat kind of idea, right? It's very important. Fellowship with believers. This is important. This is not just important. This is called upon. As we look at Acts, what did they do? 
They did not fail to meet together. We are the church. That's it. We are the church. We meet together. We bolster each other. If you're doing something wrong and I think it's out of line, I will tell you. If I'm doing something wrong and you think it's out of line, you need to tell me. If one of you loses all of the money in your bank account, we are called to come together and help that person. If somebody's kid is sick and they need child, we come together and we help. That's what the church does. We love each other, right? Accountability of believers. Text, call, message. I thought it was awesome that we got a text last week. You saw it on the group text. If you're on it, needed some prayer. Like that's what we're called. Brothers, I need some prayer. Perfect. Let's, you know, take five minutes, pray for this guy. He's asking for it. So we're going to do it. My words do nothing. I am interceding. He says, pray for me. I go to Jesus and say, this guy needs you. Jesus already knows it. It's the unity of the body of Christ. It's what we're called to do. Study and search the scriptures when it gets hard. When your life hurts, when stuff doesn't go right and the finances aren't right, go back to this every single time. Don't peel away from it and be like, God's not doing it right. God's not being faithful to me. I don't know why God's far away. If God's not far away from you, he's with you. He's got you. He's sleeping in the front of the boat. And you know why he's sleeping? Because he's in control of all of it. And he doesn't need to wake up and freak out like you are. So don't worry about it. Do not reach, retreat into your pain or sin when you find yourself in the storm. You're in his boat. He has you. You will become more reliant on him when you practice being reliant on him when it's peaceful. If you practice it and when it's peaceful, it'll be easier when it's wartime. What's that old saying? The more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war, right? The more you write his promise on your heart, the more you will rely on him. So continue to write this on your heart as we finish up. I just, it is so important to understand that he is our peace. And when we write his word on our heart by reading it, studying it, praying over it with our family, we will become more resilient. It's just like in the military, when you go to the range, you do it all the time so that when you need to use your weapon in combat, it's second nature. We become resilient. We run and we do push-ups and we do sit-ups, not so that we can look fit, although that's cool, but when the moment calls upon us to work, our body responds in a way that it's supposed to right? That is why we exercise coming to God with our problems all of the time, even when it's peaceful. So that's my encouragement for you today. So Father, we just thank you for who you are. We love you. And we thank you for this message. And we thank you for Paul, the apostle, and bringing this to the Ephesians and allowing it to be preserved over the centuries, the millennia, so that we can understand from you. And pray for these families, Lord that they would just come to you today, that they would pray to you today, they would be on their knees with you today, Lord, having that prayer conversation with you so that they may become more resilient in you so that when things are not good, they don't need to freak out in the boat that they know that you're already there, that you're calm, that you're not freaking out because you're God and you've got it and you've got us. The work's already been done, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So we thank you, Lord, for that work. And I just ask for peace for all of my friends and all of my friends' children. 
And we thank you for this amazing nation that we live in, where we're able to live mostly in peace, able to worship you freely, Lord. And just ask that we be a light in these communities. And we thank you for who you are. And we ask for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.